Father, we come today as your people, glad to be in the house of the Lord, to sing praises to your name with the people of God, to lift our hearts and voices in song and praise and adoration for the God who saves us from sins. We gladly rejoice today in the name of our Savior, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we come today in a time in our lives in which our country is in uh, important days, we lift up our country to you today, Father. We pray that you would lead our president as he leads us uh, through difficult times. We commit him to you. We commit the leadership of our men and women in Congress. Father, as a church, we come to you recognizing the great privilege we have as your people to live the light of the gospel in our community, in our city, and in our nation. And Father, today we are beginning a new venture here at Grace Evan. We call it the Grace Venture. And we, Father, come to you as your people, excited about the future that you have for us and the opportunity that we have as your people to be a greater asset to the kingdom of the living God. And we commit ourselves to that. And Father, this morning we pray that our worship will be pleasing to you. We give all that we are, all that our being, everything that we possess, our minds, our intellect, our wills, our emotions, we commit to you this morning. We pray that after having been here today, we, Father, would be encouraged as your people and you will be pleased indeed by our worship. Father, we come now to this part of the worship service in which we take the opportunity to give back to you part of what you have given to us, recognizing, Father, that all things that we have, everything we possess, comes from you. So we give this morning joyfully. We give, Father, expecting to see the kingdom of God expanded because, Father, we understand that you are at work today in the lives of your people and the lives of the lost. We pray that you will continue to draw lost men and women to you. And we pray that even today a lost man or woman will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Finally, Father, we commit the preaching hour to you. We pray that you will use this sinful man to break open the word of God and speak truth to us. Speak through me today that we may be encouraged through truth. And we will give you all the glory and praise. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5. While you're turning there, I want to remind you of this book that we're offering to you by Randy Alcorn, The Treasure Principle. We still have plenty of these books left. There are some right here on the foot of the stage. You're welcome to get one of those books. If you haven't read it yet, I encourage you to read that book. It'll be a blessing to you. It's The Alcorn, or the Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Our text today is Ephesians chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 15. Paul writing to the Christians at Ephesus and throughout the region of Asia Minor. And he says these words in verse 15. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit or with the Spirit. 
And speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, Not long after Grace Church was founded in the early 90s, I was going through my ordination process I think you've seen at least part of the, what the ordination process is like because every January we, here in the service, we take time to set aside elders and we have that brief ceremony where we have the laying on of hands and that was part of my process. But there is another part to the process, at least another part to the process that I had to go through that most people in the church did not see and that was what we call the ordination council. And this was a uh, but kind of behind closed doors meeting where I sat in a large conference room in a rather intimidating setting where the senior pastor of the church that I was a part of, the church that was setting me apart for the ministry, that senior pastor had chaired this council and he had called in some fellow pastors in the area of like faith and those men were there and then some of the other leadership in that particular church was there and these men were sitting around the table and I was there with all I had in front of me was my Bible and uh, they had the opportunity to go around the table and ask any kind of doctrinal theological question that they chose to ask me and their questioning went something like this Uh, Richard what is your view of the doctrine of Christ and his dual nature and its relationship to to man and can you defend your position from scripture and so I would take the scripture and defend my position on the doctrine of Christ and we discuss issues like the inspiration of scripture and my understanding of total depravity and, and on and on it went and everything went well except for one question that I really gave only a partially correct answer to and that had to do with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit I missed part of the, the answer part of that question And that day, those men very graciously explained to me the part that I didn't quite understand about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in its relationship to the Christian life and our uh, journey of sanctification. And one of the passages that that ordination council took me to was Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, where Paul says, Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what that council did that day was explained to me once again and reminded me that the filling of the Holy Spirit is not the same as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They also took me to the book of Acts, chapter 2, where we see in those first four verses of that chapter that Luke teaches that there are two distinct truths when it comes to the Holy Spirit. We see in Acts, chapter 2, that at Pentecost... Believers were baptized with the Holy Spirit into one body. And you might remember that Paul addresses this issue to the Romans or Christians at Rome in Romans chapter 8, where he says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, then he does not belong to the Father. And then you might remember that letter that Paul wrote to those worldly Corinthians, where he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And all of these texts are, in, are addressed to people who are believers. That they are being, that had, as believers, they were baptized or filled or baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion. And then yet in Acts chapter 2, we also see that 
The Holy Spirit later also filled those believers and they began to give miraculous testimony. And we don't have time today to get into those miraculous signs. There's still some debate even among good evangelical Christians as to which signs are present today, should be practiced today in the church, and which signs should not. We don't have time to do that. But if you'd like to debate that issue, you can uh, contact Jeff Simons tomorrow. He'd be glad to talk with you about it. Just email Jeff at jeff at graceofan.org and you can get into a discussion about which signs are present today in the church. But nonetheless, we see in Acts chapter 2 that the believers later were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then here in our text today, Paul says to to the Christians at Ephesus, instead he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to spend our time together today talking just briefly about the filling of the Holy Spirit. And primarily, I want to point out to you the three characteristics that Paul points to us, or points us to here in this Ephesians. The three characteristics of the Spirit-filled life. And before I get to that, I want to cover a couple of things that might have piqued your interest in our text today. First of all, one of the strategies that Paul uses in this epistle to encourage the Christians at Ephesus is to, he often compared that former way of life, the life of the unregenerate, with the new life or the life of the regenerate. And he reminds us throughout this epistle that we, as believers, were once a part of that former way of life. If you look back in chapter 4, just turn the page maybe if you have to, chapter 4. He uh, shows us in verse 17, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles live. Now the Gentiles were a term that was a term that Paul used to include those of the unregenerate state. And he says you don't want to, you don't long, no longer live as the unregenerate live. He says in the futility of their thinking. Now notice what he does in verse 18. He says they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Now, Paul uses this contrast in this epistle. He contrasts this former way of life, the life of the unregenerate, by calling it or describing it as this life of characterized by darkness. Ladies and gentlemen, we once walked in darkness. We lived in the futility of our thinking. But now we walk in light. If you look over to chapter 5, verse 8, he continues this comparison. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live then as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then in the text that we read today, beginning in verse 15, Paul makes another comparison. We could call it the comparison between the foolish life, that former way of life, and now this new life, or this life of wisdom. And Paul says again in verse 15, Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Paul calls the, calls the Christians at Ephesus to this important life that we now live. And it's critical that we are alert in this present age in which we live. It, it, and as it was in the days of the Ephesians church, so it is today. We live in critical times. And Paul speaks words like this. Making the most of every opportunity because, he says, the days are evil. It's as if... The world is tottering to its own destruction under the weight of its own corruption. Have you ever seen 
in the mid midwinter months in January and February, have you ever seen a news report where some shopping center, some Toys R Us, has uh, after a heavy snowfall, the roof has collapsed under its weight of the snow because the roof wasn't designed to hold up under that kind of weight. And that's sort of the analogy that Paul uses here. Be, be alert, ladies and gentlemen. We live in corrupt days. The days are evil. If we look in the Gospels, we often see that Jesus was very aware of the times in which he lived. He understood that the days were evil. And it's interesting that the days, these days that Jesus spoke of and the days that Paul speaks of here in this epistle are never talked about being lengthened, but always that they're being shortened. The days are evil. So it's imperative that we're about the master's business, that we are concentrated our lives upon kingdom living. And then Paul says, and I think this is interesting, verse 17, don't, don't be foolish. Do not be, don't live like the foolish man lives, but understand what the Lord's will is. Again, this contrast between the foolish way of living and then understanding the will of the Lord, wise living. And then he brings this analogy to the table. He says in verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Now, guys, this is an interesting passage because I think some people have misused this passage um, to teach that the, the uh, to teach total abstinence. And I don't think you can teach total abstinence from this passage. What Paul is doing is using this issue of drunkenness to illustrate foolish living. If you place this in the context of the Ephesian Christians or Ephesians Church, you would know that the city of Ephesus is located in what we could call the Napa Valley of Asia Minor. One of the primary means of wealth in this part of the country of Asia Minor was the production of wine. And uh, so much so that these people loved wine so much and they depended upon the production of wine so much that they created a, a false wine god. His name was Bacchus. And they worshipped this wine god. And then it's obvious that in their day and in this part of the world that some people had begun to abuse wine and they had be, uh, become drunks and their lives were, he uses the term debauchery, that is their lives were wasting away. They lacked restraint and this lack of restraint was leading to ruin. And so it is today. Men who abuse strong drink in their lives, their families, lives can be totally ruined by lack of self-control. And so Paul uses this one issue, and there are many others that he could have used, but this was one that was prevalent in his day. The people at Ephesus could relate to this. In fact, it's probably true that some of the people within the church were guilty of drunkenness. And Paul says, don't live like the drunk lives, yet live like the wise man. Make the most of your time. Live with discernment, discerning what the will of the Lord, uh, the Lord is. And so, guys, with that, Paul moves forward and he says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. And this is also a common presentation of Paul when he gives a command in Scripture. Now, this is a command, be filled with the Spirit. It's a command to believers. It's a command to us today that we are to be filled with the Spirit. And often when Paul gives a command, it's preceded by this negative prohibition. Don't be drunk with wine in excess that leads to debauchery. Instead, the positive part of the command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And then Paul lays out for us, I think, your three characteristics of the Spirit-filled life. And I want to share those with you briefly this morning before we celebrate this sacrament. The first characteristic of the Spirit-filled life we find in verse 19. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Now, guys, look at this verse. It, It teaches us quite a bit. He says, speak to one another... To each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then he says, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Guys, I think what Paul here is alluding to is the reality that in the spirit-filled life, there is this inner song, this inner music that must come out. And it eventually expresses itself in the corporate worship of God's people. Uh, last late yesterday afternoon, I discovered that my hot water tank was leaking, and I have a hot water tank in the attic. And you know, if it's in the attic and leaking, that's one thing. If it's downstairs, you know, in the storage room, that's another. But mine was in the attic, and I thought, well, I really ought to take care of this. So I, after or before dinner, I went up into the attic and looked at the hot water heater, and I discovered that the relief valve was actually leaking. The tank itself was fine, but the relief valve was leaking. Now, I know I'm speaking Greek to some of you ladies, but uh, bear with me because there's a point to this story. And uh, So I decided that after dinner, this was my excuse to go to Lowe's and buy a new relief valve. So uh, after dinner, I told him, I've got to go to Lowe's and I need to replace his relief valve in the hot water heater. And so I went to Lowe's, got a new relief valve and went up in the attic. And just before I was going up the stairs to go into the attic, uh, Holly, my daughter, who was staying the night somewhere else, called and said to remind me that the ball game was on, that Tennessee and Georgia were playing on television. And I really wanted to see that game. And I knew it was an important game and I'd forgotten that it was coming on late, later in the evening. So... I knew I had to fix this hot water heater, so I went up in the attic, and now I knew how to do this because I had read a little bit about it in one of those books at Lowe's, you know, how to work on your hot water heater. So I knew that there was pressure in the tank and that I needed to drain some of the water off and open the valve at the bottom, get the pressure off the tank before I could replace the relief valve at the top. But I was a little impatient. The ball game was on, so I thought I could speed it up a little bit. I drained some water and I said, well, that ought to be enough, and it's still draining. And so I got my new relief valve ready and had the stuff, you know, on the, the threads and ready to put. I got everything ready, and I said, I'm going to jerk this other relief valve out real quick and put the other one in, and I won't lose a lot of water, and I can be downstairs and watch the ball game. So I tried it, and I discovered why they call it a relief valve, because there's about 150 pounds per square inch pressure in every inch of that water tank. And so when I popped that old relief valve out, it was a a mad race to get the other one in because water was pouring out of the side of this hot water tank and it wasn't all being caught in the basin below. It was pouring out in the attic floor. And so, guys, I had to hurriedly put this new relief valve in because there was pressure in the tank. And ladies and gentlemen, I think in at least to some degree, this is what Paul is describing to us today for the Christian That because of this miraculous work of grace in our lives, those of us who are filled with the Spirit possess this inner desire to worship God. And that is part of the context of our worship would be psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You ever wonder what those are? The psalms, of course, are, Paul is alluding to the Hebrew hymn book. The psalms that we're so familiar with that speak of God's goodness 
Like Psalm 111, great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in him, for his righteousness endures forever. And this is within us. And not only is it within us, but we desire to express this goodness of God in some outward way. And then there are hymns. Hymns typically speak of Christ's redemption. The last song we'll sing today before we go home will speak of Christ's redemption. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a sweet thing to consider that we have been set free from the shackles of our sin. Oh, the bliss. The bliss of this glorious thought. Have you sinned any this week? Some of you will come to this table today a little bit apprehensive because of the sins of yesterday. But oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. That my sins, not in part, but the whole, have been nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. That's a hymn that sings of, speaks of Christ's redemption. And it's within us and we must express it in an outward way. Then there are spiritual songs. And these guys are songs that often that speak of God's help and his comfort. And we sing spiritual songs here at our worship. Like the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. In the morning when you get up on the fall, crisp Monday morning, you sit on the patio and have a cup of coffee and you look at the steam rising from the lawns and the golden leaves on the trees. Can you say these words? The mercies of the Lord never come to an end. They are new every morning. New every morning. Great is the faithfulness of the Lord. These are spiritual songs. And The Apostle Paul says these songs within us, if we're spirit-filled, are like an artesian of praise that are silently coming from one's depths. And the public expression of this inner music is the celebrative worship of God's people. I tell you guys, I think some of the reason we lack celebrative worship in our churches today is because there is little private worship in our own lives. Those private rooms in our houses, and that private moments in our own soul that we sing out these praises of God in celebration of His goodness, of His faithfulness, and His work of redemption. Spirit-filled people overflow in song. They always have. Study church history. Song is all singing, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs have always been a part of the vibrant church. About 60 years after this epistle was written, The Christian church was going through a severe period of of, uh, torment and torture and abuse. In fact, the Apostle Paul's life was taken by the Emperor Nero. About 50 or 60 years after that, there was a letter written by one of the Roman governors, Pliny. He was writing a letter to the Roman Emperor Trajan, who was... Uh, abusing the Christians and causing havoc in the church. And Pliny writes this letter to the Roman Emperor, and he says, These Christians... I don't know what I'm going to do about them. It seems the more we uh, abuse them, the more they suffer, the stronger they grow. In fact, their music, he says, their songs ring out in the streets. This is a letter written by a pagan ruler to the pagan emperor because they couldn't snuff out the scene of the Christians. You know your church history about 500 A.D., somewhere around 400-500 A.D. The church at Rome takes the scriptures away from the laity. And for almost a millennium, the church, in generally speaking, stops singing. It's not until the period of the Reformation 
when truth was once again preached from the pulpits across Europe and the scriptures were put back into the hands of the people, did once again the congregations erupt in song and some of the greatest hymns written in Christendom were written during the Reformation. Why? Because where the true gospel is known and believed, music is loved and music is sung. Later, during the Wesleyan revivals in the 18th century, Charles Wesley himself wrote 6,000 hymns. Ladies and gentlemen, it continues today. In regions all over the world, the church is erupting in worship, celebrative praise, the singing of great hymns, and the singing of spiritual songs. Just a couple of years, or a few years ago, I took a group of young men down to Honduras, and you've heard me tell part of this story. Some of you in the congregation were with me. You can testify to this. We went to one of the most economically depraved regions of the world. Physically, it wasn't a very attractive place. It was a very depressed region. There in that dry, dusty village, we worked all week long helping these villagers build a church. And I'm telling you guys, the highlight of that week, for me, was that midweek service that we went to on that Wednesday night. We went in that small block building, and those Honduran Christians flooded in that building. They had a PA system larger than the one we have here. And they loved to sing, and they opened their hearts in celebrative worship. And I'm telling you, it was the one thing to me that stood out in all of that week, in that dry, barren place. There was life in that village, because there was a group of people, I think, who were filled with the Spirit of God. And that Spirit of God erupted into celebrative worship. One of the evidences of the Spirit-filled life is a yearning to worship with God's people. The second evidence, the second characteristic of the Spirit-filled life, Paul says in verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second characteristic of the Spirit-filled life is a life of thanksgiving. Are you thankful today for everything the Lord has done for you? Is there in your life this constant spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving for God to God? I, I, I've told this before, but right after Carl and I married in the first apartment we lived in, right above our dining room table, we had this uh, painting of a... I don't know the name of this painting, but it, it's it's very common painting. It's a it's a picture of an elderly, white-haired man, and he's sitting at his table over a simple bowl of soup, and a, I think there's a loaf of bread sitting beside him, and he's giving thanks to God. And we kept that picture over our table for several years. In fact, the next house we moved into, it was there. And I think maybe the first house we bought, we still had that painting. And I would always look at that picture, and it always spoke to me of this spirit of gratitude that we ought to have as God's people for everything. Don't take anything for granted. It all comes from God. Another thing that that picture spoke to me was this. It spoke to me of peace. That there was this, this, this sense of peace in this man's life. This freedom from anxiety. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm convinced that one of, the, one of the messages, one of the evidences of the Spirit-filled life that Jesus talks about in Matthew 6 is this freedom from anxiety. We don't fear tomorrow. We don't worry about what we might lose or what we didn't gain today because we are at peace with God the Provider. And we know that He will take care of us. Richard Foster wrote a book called The Celebration of Discipline. 
In one of those chapters, he writes these words. Listen to this. He says, to receive what we have as a gift from God is the first inner attitude of simplicity. We work, but we know that it is not our work that gives us what we have. We live by grace even when it comes to daily bread. We are dependent upon God for the simplest elements of life. Air, water, sun. What we have is not the result of our labor, but of the gracious care of God. The second characteristic of the Spirit-filled life is a life of gratitude. And thirdly and finally, there's this characteristic of the Spirit-filled life that Paul calls a life of submission. Look in verse 21. He says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I did a little research on this word submission and I found out that Paul uses this word submission 20 times in his epistles. You know what it means? Submission means a willingness to yield our rights to others. That's a submissive life. Ladies and gentlemen, if you live in the kind of world I live and you have a family, you have children, you have a wife, and you have co-workers, and you have uh, all kinds of experiences during the week, you know how impossible it is to live up to this standard without the filling of the Spirit of God. To submit to people that are unlovely and unkind, to submit when we don't feel like submitting, it's beyond our capability unless we are filled with the Holy Spirit. A life of submission. Now, guys, we have been challenging you here recently. Jimmy has just begun this challenge, and you're going to hear more about it as the weeks go on. We're calling it the Grace Venture. We're leading the people of grace to a new chapter of our history. I'm excited about Grace Venture. And, guys, I'm telling you, I, I, can, I repeat what Jimmy said. If you think this is about raising money, you're missing the whole point. This is about kingdom living. And one of the prayers we're asking you to pray, and I've begun this prayer in my own life because I desperately need it. I have been praying, Lord, increase my faith. Increase my faith so that I'm willing to abandon the things I hold on to. Abandon things for the kingdom of heaven. Well, I want to challenge you to another prayer as we embark upon this grace venture. I want to challenge you to pray this prayer. Pray that the Holy Spirit of God would fill us. Pray it personally. When you rise in the morning, when you lay your head on the pillow at night, submit yourself to the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul has called us to here in chapter 5. Pray that God would fill you. What this means, guys, is, is that there, must, there ought to be periods almost daily in our life where we yield to the Spirit of God. Oh, Spirit of God, I yield to your filling today. Fill me today. Consume me today so much that I might live a life that expresses the love and grace of Jesus Christ. I I encourage you, ladies and gentlemen, to pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, if we're not filled with the Spirit of God, Grace Venture will not be a success. Pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. You know what Paul is about to address here in this chapter? I I look at this verse 21, and and some commentators arrange verse 21 in a different order. Some place it down in this next section with the relationship of wives and husbands. But I I see it as a bridge in verse. This principle of mutual submission, that we are to submit to one another out of love and reverence for Christ. This principle of mutual submission is a bridge that Paul uses to move us into interpersonal relationships. He's about to teach us 
concerning the role of the husband in the home and the wife's submission to the husband and the husband's responsibility to the wife. And then he's about to embark upon this uh, chapter 6 where he teaches about the, concerning the children and the way that they're to obey and honor their parents and that the fathers have a responsibility to the children. All of it built upon this principle of mutual submission. We must, ladies and gentlemen, we must seek the filling of the Holy Spirit. Pray that God would fill us with His Spirit. Now, before we take the sacraments, we voice a prayer for us. Father, we do thank You for what You have done for us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You, Father, that not only have You saved us in ages past, not only before the foundations of the world were laid did You call us in relationship to Yourself, and then on particular days for many of us, we remember that moment when we were born into the family of God. You saved us from our sins. Not only that, but you continue to save us today. You're working out this great salvation currently in our lives. And Father, we thank you that you have given to us your Holy Spirit that dwells within us. That has taken up residence in our hearts and in our lives. And so, Father, we pray today. We yield today to the Holy Spirit of God. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will fill us as individuals. Fill me. Fill Jimmy Young. Fill the eldership of this church. Fill the members of this body that we may be a church filled, possessed, driven by the Spirit of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.